So as I've mentioned before, I don't really do these in order. As the nature of working on any show is, you kind of work on what you can, when you can, especially when you have to, you know, balance other aspects of your show at the same time. You know, I, I don't just work on Star Trek stuff, so it has to accommodate the Friday stuff, which has to accommodate the stream stuff, and so forth and so on. <clears throat> I mentioned that because the last episode I just looked at was the Maquis. <sighs> then I immediately go into this episode. Now, the reason I'm even bringing this up is because one of the most... Uh, paint a target on my face things I could probably do and still actually mean it and not, you know, literally be lying or making it up for the sake of controversy is to talk about the prime directive on a show you know, talking about Star Trek. Now I've actually already done that, but mostly on the Voyager stuff and not really to the extent that I could have. But here we are once again talking about the prime directive on TNG. In fact, in, this will be the second to last time we bring up the Prime Directive on TNG by memory. There might be other instances, but we've got the Worf's Brother episode, you know the one, and this one. Now, I have to talk about this here because this is basically the TNG Prime Directive episode. They didn't actually bring it up all that much in TNG. It was much more a vehicle of Voyager and, weirdly enough, Enterprise, but yeah, they kind of dropped that, thankfully. But before we get to that, <clears throat> I want to talk about a couple of other little things. So first of all, this episode was handed to Melissa Snodgrass to polish up and refine. And it kind of shows. This is a very down-to-earth episode. While there is a threat of the week, kind of, there isn't really. Mostly the threat here is the nature of the dilemma and the morality facing our heroes, you know, the crew. The other thing about this episode that I like is it takes its time. This is a very slow-paced episode, and that's a good thing right up until the 30-minute mark. I actually had have almost an entire page of notes just for all the stuff up to the 30-minute mark. And then I have, this is not an exaggeration, zero notes from then on. Nothing because the episode really feels like it peaks at about that point when they decide, okay, we're going to go ahead and help Sashenka and the planet, and we're going to fix the situation. Then they do it. And then there's a couple of cute scenes, and then Data really, really pushes Picard's buttons. Good God. Bringing her onto the bridge? I cannot imagine why he did that. <laughs> Anyways... Moving on. So let's talk about Picard briefly. Now, his discussion about the horse makes perfect sense. This is another reason why I mentioned this episode has some of Melissa Snodgrass's uh, fingerprints on it, because she was good at establishing character traits that have depth to them the more you look at them. In this case, his companionship with the horse. I know that sounds strange, but... As he talks about, you know, it was there for the journey. It, 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 it slept in your bed and it carried you into battle. Its milk fed your children, etc., etc. It was not just a mount. And it was not just a pet. It was effectively something that you had an intimate bond with and relied on. And it relied on you. There was a partnership involved. Now, the reason I say that there's tremendous depth to this is because that is exactly what Picard feels about his ship. 
you cannot tell me that Picard does not have a massive amount of connection to his ship, whatever his ship might be at any given particular point in time. Um, he mentions how he still remembers the Stargazer fondly. This actually happens uh, much further on in the James Doohan episode. He also, uh, t- you know, he, he laments how much, how horrible it was to lose the galaxy uh, few, in in the in the movie, right? I see in Picard someone who believes he has... I don't say believe, that's the wrong word. Because everyone automatically assumes something religious from that word. He thinks in a manner such that there is an innate partnership between the ship and the crew and the captain. And distinguishing them into those three categories... The ship cannot be functioning without the crew. The crew cannot function without the captain. Captain can't function without the ship. And everything else in between. All three rely on each other. It's that partnership. And that informs so much of his command style, too. Uh, I've said it before. Picard tends to have the soft touch. Well, he is more than capable of saying, do this, and being in, taking command in a military situation, for example, Picard is the kind of guy who, and that's actually mentioned in this episode, will bring a bunch of people together and say, what do we think? Get opinions from everyone, debate everything, and then make a decision. A bit more of a fatherly approach to things. Trying to engineer a warm atmosphere amongst his crew. A a camaraderie, let's be honest. A family is really what it boils down to. Anywho... It is also some of the beginnings of Picard's love of ancient stuff. And I don't mean the archaeology thing. I mean, like, you know, the ship in the bottle, right? Or uh, his his love, oh, going out on the ship, and oh, it's great, and nobody can reach you here, right? Probably has to do with something with the nature of where he grew up. If I can diverge just for a second on that, I think Picard and I have that one thing in common. Just the one thing. Nothing else. I think that, uh, see, Picard loves technology. He relies on it on a daily basis, and he believes firmly in its proper usage. Uh, This is probably best shown in the episode Family, uh, over in Season 4. But he likes to have the option of walking away from technology, right? Like, he likes the ability to just say, I just want to go for a walk in the park, just for a little bit. I want to go take a horse and and go galloping around the countryside. He likes that access to the old while still relying on the new. And that's something I don't often see in fictional characters. Usually they're all one or all the other. So I like that. So then Data gets the transmission. Woo. And then some Wesley stuff happens, which we'll talk about in just a second. But I just want to say, the weirdest thing about this episode is that there's a six-week gap. And it's the weirdest kind. It's like, all right, blah, 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 and I'm, I'm upgrading the sensors, which will be able to find all new sorts of things. You know, a little bit of foreshadowing there. And Wesley has to start taking command. And then six weeks later, just bam, I felt like I was in Dragon Age 2 all over again. Um, but let's talk about the Wesley thing really quick. So, <laughs> believe it or not, I don't really have anything against Wesley. Not in general. I know some people, as recently as today, by my reckoning as of recording this, have accused me of hating Wesley. Uh, Those people are wrong. I do have problems with Wesley and the way he is written from time to time, um, but I don't have anything against the character in general. And I think they actually did a pretty good job with him in this episode. 
there's a scene where the entire senior staff gets together and discusses what they're going to do with him. There's some interesting back and forth there. One of the things that really caught my attention was that uh, I think it's Troy mentions you can't gate you can't guide someone towards adulthood. I actually disagree with that completely. It is my firm opinion that if you do not properly take care of a child as they are growing up throughout their development, that they will not become an adult. Oh, they'll be of the right age, but they will not be an adult. They will still be a child. I have actually met people in real life who are still children despite being 20, 30, and that's about as high as I've seen personally. I wouldn't be surprised if some of you know some people like that or have known people like that. So I like that they're all getting together and showing a demonstrable caring about trying to nurture Wesley going forward. This is actually part of a subplot that will be going across some of Season 2 and into Season 3 about Wesley. We've already kind of covered the first part of it. And when I say kind of, I mean we haven't. But if in my head canon we have. Or if I was rewriting things, we have. Do you remember the dolphin? In the dolphin, it was, it was his first crush. And it didn't go anywhere and it will never matter again. But one of the other reasons I wanted that to be him opening up to people was because it would be the first step in this arc. This arc actually starts in the actual episodes here, in this episode, with Wesley being uh, approach, approaching the concepts of command and how to socially interact with people who are, both in terms of age and experience, his senior and having to give them orders. Wesley properly struggles with this for you know the most of the early 30 minutes of the episode and i do think he does a good job with that he is a there's this great scene where he's struggling to go into the room and they're already in there they're already working and his team is already doing their thing and he's like oh god oh god what do i do the nitpicker in me has to point out why isn't the door opening every time he goes up to it but and then pulaski shows up and is like hey Right, And then six weeks later. But anyways, I bring that up because Wesley is a bit of an introvert and a bit of a social non-entity. This, again, would be part of why I feel my uh, edit to the Dolphin would help this because he does eventually grow a little bit out of this, but only a little bit. And that brilliance plus social awkwardness I know I'm caricaturizing it, but forgive me, is something that will be a major part of his overarching character arc, especially when we get to season three. And I bring that up because someone who is socially awkward is the kind of person who's going to look at that, you know, you have to go tell these people who are better at their jobs than you are and who are older than you what to do. And he's... Like, isn't that so easy to understand why that would just cause you to freeze up? I bet some of you listening to this right now, or watching me right now, have had similar social anxiety about situations where you weren't going at to tell people what to do, right? Like just saying hi, or trying to interact with people, sitting down at the right at the same table in the lunchroom, or going to the, uh, the side room in the office and kibitzing and chatting, right? I bet a lot of you understand that concept. So you can kind of feel for Wesley here, right? Now, I will say, Wheaton's acting is not perfect. I'm not going to lick his boots on this one. But I do think they do a good job of presenting it. Which brings me to my next point. So, one of the things I like about this episode is that the A and the B plot mesh together in a way 
that makes perfect sense, but only if you really take a step back and look at both from a distance. Because the recurrent theme is that of the burden of leadership. Wesley is just beginning this. He has just begun the very first steps of understanding what this concept means. And throughout the episode, up until about the 30-minute point, Picard has to shoulder that burden and endure the reality of it with the many years of experience. And there's a wonderful line way towards the end, almost at the very end of the episode, where, where Wesley says, does it ever get easier or something like that? And Riker's like, nope, it never gets easier. And we see Picard walk by and it's like, yeah, <laughs> I liked that. And, of course, obviously their dilithium thing helps them solve the plot of the day, so the A and B plots are literally as well as thematically connected. So that's good. I also want to give credit to the guest stars, uh, especially Davies, right when he first shows up. They're all, they all hit a very specific balance point between overbearing and helpful. They're not too helpful. They're not doormats. But they're not overbearing and rude, which is especially important since in my opinion, too often Starfleet personnel come across as overbearing and rude. Instead, they're at that right in the middle there, where, you know, it's like, hey, we could do this. Oh, you should have done this instead. But that's okay, we'll make it work, you know? Or, I don't know, this feels like it's going to take too long. Maybe we shouldn't do this, right? Now, West, of course, part of the point of this is that, that they are giving their opinions on the matter, and it is Wesley's job as the manager, let's call it what it is, in order to look at that scenario and decide what needs to be accomplished there. That's where Wesley fails, and he goes and talks to Riker and has a great pep talk. And Riker, I'm, I'm just going to give praise to the scene where Riker talks to him. I'm not going to dissect it. There's not actually much to dissect there. But I think it is very well written, and I think Jonathan Frakes does a good job with it. So, I also want to mention one other tiny little thing. They've mentioned several times, especially in Season 1, how Wesley is a prodigy when it comes to warp, engines, technology. And the automatic assumption there is that Wesley's kind of on the, for lack of a better term, engineering or science tracks, right? And yet this episode is all about him being on the command track. The idea of being the kind of person who has to be in control or in command and having to take command lessons as a result of that. I find myself wondering if the intent, at least at this point in time, was for Wesley to literally be on the command track, to be someone who would eventually go into being second officer, first officer, captain, etc. I don't know, I'm just curious. Because not everyone of rank is necessarily of the command track. There are other ways to be a high-ranking member within your specialized field. Although, if I'm being honest, Star Trek doesn't cover that particular fine shading of reality too often, but I digress. Um, yep, no, I got nothing else. I got to talk about the Prime Directive now. Ah, oh, damn it, okay. Let me first say that I'm not a fan of the Prime Directive. Now, I don't hate it. I do hate how it's usually applied. In fact, in both this episode and the later one I referenced with Worf's brother, I hate how it's applied. The idea of, oh, there's a bunch of people who are dying and we could do something to save them. <laughs> like, that infuriates me. It really does. I am the kind of person who, by my nature, does not believe in such rigidity when it comes to rules. 
you need to look at that situation and say, okay, let's examine the spirit of the prime directive. What is the spirit of the prime directive? Well, the spirit of the prime directive is anti-interventionism as a direct consequence of the Truman era. But in, in character, what, what, what the, uh, prime, the prime directive is, is we don't want to play God. We don't want to make vast, overwhelming changes to a people's culture, like Kirk did every other day, in order to try and prevent basically mucking things up. It's sort of an acknowledgement that we are not wise or smart enough to predict all of the future and therefore are not going to be deliberately attempting to affect that future. Now, I can just hear you saying, well, hang on, Laura, that sounds exactly like the opposite of what you just said. And that's why I feel we have the problem with the Prime Directive. Because too often people treat that as if it is a universal thing, all or nothing. Even this episode goes into that exact point. There's this... This scene, which is both good and awful for various reasons, where they, where the characters in character discuss the Prime Directive. And it's probably one of the best Prime Directive discussion scenes uh, ever in the history of Star Trek. There have been specific points and nuances here and there throughout the series. The original series, DS9, Voyager, uh, even Enterprise. But this is when the characters really sit down and debate it in character. And we see plenty of reasons for and against. There's only a couple points I really want to point out about that discussion. First of all, we got to talk about the idea of the cosmic plan. <sighs> much as I don't want to. So the very idea of a cosmic plan is very simple. If you're going to sit down and, and presume or believe in the concept that there is a cosmic plan and there is a, there, basically, if there is an idea such as fate, a guiding force that is leading us towards where we should be, then what you are saying is you effectively believe in the concept of God. Now, I know that's a hell of a bombshell to drop there. But it doesn't mean you're religious, and it doesn't mean you're spiritual, because the core integral concept of what God, as in just plain old you know, Abrahamic God, or whatever you want to call that, uh, is, is the idea of one overarching plan, you know, consciousness, entity, intelligence, whatever you want to call it, that says this is what should be, this is the baseline. And from this baseline, things can be judged to be positive or negative. You with me? Thus, if we are to presume that Reich, the fact that Riker brings this up of all things is just mind-boggling to me, but if we are to presume that Riker, who believes in this cosmic plan and is staring at this cosmic plan, truly acknowledges and believes in this concept, then what Riker is saying is that there is a pattern of fate that is deliberately being pushed in a given direction, and that that is what, again, should be. That's the baseline. Now, I'm not saying whether that's good, bad, nonsensical, sense-making, logical, or illogical. That's not my job. I'm not here to judge. But I do find it interesting that that is one of the core elements of the argument that's brought up when it comes to the Prime Directive. Because that is something I've heard before from fans to try and defend the ideas of the Prime Directive. That there is a plan, that there is this overarching concept of this is where this should be and this should go. They don't call it God, but sometimes they call it evolution. Sometimes they call it nature. Sometimes they call it 
the pattern of the universe, but it is all really the same thing. A central baseline upon which all other things are judged. All other things should adhere to that line. Now, what I find funny about that is Jordy and Troy both bring up the obvious counter-argument to that. We are here and aware of the scenario. If there is a God, nature, cosmic plan, whatever you want to call it, we are, we are accounted into that. We are not separate from that plan. Ergo, we should be acting accordingly. And I do find that interesting because that gets into a very philosophical debate of whether or not such a concept, the cosmic plan concept, is infallible or not. I, I, I'm saying that wrong. I don't mean if it's immutable or not. In other words, if it takes everything into account or if it does not take into account free will. And that is a hell of a discussion that I don't feel like getting into. So, <laughs> next point that's brought up. Uh, oh, yeah, actually, one other point. Really quick, I'm sorry. There is one other point on this. Uh, Pulaski brings it up. And they, Pulaski knocks over their drink. It's okay, it's in a safe spot. My drinks are always in a safe spot. <laughs> so after knocking over her drink, because Pulaski is just that drunk. My God, woman. She, um, as she's wiping the memory of Sergenko, or whatever the heck her name is, she says she has to grow up who she was born to be. That, again, goes back to that idea that there is a natural plan, idea, nature, God, concept, pattern, whatever, that should be, and that us interfering with that is an automatic negative. I will weigh in, in my opinion, that I find this to be an unacceptable argument in favor of the Prime Directive. And I want to give my reasoning. Because it is my opinion that if there is a thing, an entity, a consciousness, an intellect, whatever, that is nature, God, plan, pattern, whatever, you know, the whole thing I keep talking about, I, I don't have a cohesive word for it. Um, if there is such a thing, and it is that large scale to be able to take into account planets, systems, galaxies, universes, then we are accounted, you know, we as in, you know, the crew of the Enterprise, you know, people are accounted in that planet, ergo, should basically act as if the, the plan or whatever doesn't exist because their actions are already accounted into it. Now, I don't mean they should do whatever they want. I mean they should approach every situation carefully and precisely as if they otherwise would. Ergo, ignoring the plan and approaching it rationally and calmly and trying to deal with the situation while keeping in mind whatever emotional or moral attachments they might have on the matter. My opinion. Next point. This is a very minor point, but I do like that it's brought up. One of the biggest things that tends to be brought up when it comes to the Prime Directive is the application of reality versus philosophy. Um, most of the early parts of the discussion are all about philosophy. What if, maybe, kinda, who knows, right? Philosophy by its nature is an intangible. It can affect the tangible, because things that are not real can affect things that are real. But, <laughs> I know it's a weird concept, isn't it? But the, the reality, the reality, the hard tangible reality, in most cases, supersedes the intangible. This has actually been a recurring theme in recent episodes. I bring this up because, obviously this, isn't, this doesn't apply universally, but in this case, what we have is people in a room debating 
whether or not something should be good as if it was numbers on a paper. It is data who interrupts and brings reality into the topic, that they are not just debating this as if this was a debate club, that there are real people who are really dying and in very serious trouble right now. I think that is a very needed dose of um, mentality into these kind of debates. Because we could debate here and now, here in real life, the philosophy of this endlessly. Because we don't have the reality of these situations. But I think we need to acknowledge when the reality is present. You know, it is one thing to debate the long-term ramifications of effects and changes. Janeway brought this up several times. You, know, you don't know what the consequences could be. And that's true. And that is fine to debate and fine to deliberate on and fine to philosophize on. But when actual lives are actually present and actually in danger, that needs to be added to the equation because it is my opinion, this is once again my opinion on this point, that that adds weight in favor of interventioning, intervening, interventionism is what I was trying to say. In other words, of, uh, you know, if, it's, if you're doing a test on should you intervene in this case, it's easier to say no than if you're actually faced with someone who is dying right in front of you. Right? That brings me to my next point. This is actually the fourth point they bring up, but I want to I really talk about the third point last. So the fourth point is brought up that you can ask for help, and that bypasses all of this. Now, that's actually come up before, and in fact will come up later in other Star Treks. The idea is, even if they're a pre-warp civilization, if they say, help, that bypasses the rule because they are actually transmitting out a call to help into the galactic community. They might not know the Federation exists or who we are, but at that moment, it is considered acceptable to answer that SOS. In fact, uh, in some military code, it would be considered incorrect, like legally incorrect, never mind morally incorrect, to ignore that SOS. I find that interesting, and I do kind of like that inclusion. It's basically writing into a legal code a moral subset that can bypass that code. Now, of course, the problem, and that problem is brought up in this episode, is that that only applies if they know to ask for help. Let me give you a parallel. Rewind time, eh, about a century or so, maybe like 1,200, 120 years, something like that, right? Let's say in that period of time, Earth suddenly faced some Earth-destroying catastrophe that was going to kill billions of people. Do you think the people of that time would think to radio out into the universe asking for help? They might. It's possible. That's, that's why I said we have to rewind time, because nowadays I imagine people would do that just because it's easy to do now. Hell, I could probably set that up as long as I bought myself a decent dish, right? So, you know trying to send some kind of signal out for help, yeah, you can kind of see that. But you can also kind of see why some people would never think to do that. Later on in Star Trek, there's a wonderful episode. It's actually among my favorites uh, in TNG specifically. And it's called First Contact, which I know is just confusing as hell. But in that episode, the people of that planet mentioned that they have a fun fundamental belief system that they are the center of the universe and thus the only actual living beings in the universe. I imagine to those beings, even at that time they're at, where they have reasonably advanced technology and are reasonably developing and are basically just beginning to start thinking about reaching out to the stars, 
I have doubts that those people in such a catastrophe would, would just send out messages into space hoping someone catches them, right? Saying, help! So you can see kind of the catch-22 of this clause. And I think that's one of the reasons why it was written in, because it doesn't generally apply in the big situations. It applies more like in the situations like, I can't remember the name of the episode, but the drug episode, right? Back in season one, with the drug planet and the people who provide the drug planet, right? You know what I'm talking about. Because in that case, the Prime Directive applied, but only as far as interfering with their cultures. They had no problems rendering aid because... A distress signal was sent. Yeah, get with me? Thus, I, I personally feel that little attaché to the rule was added to handle smaller situations like that rather than big ones. You know, I'll save these 40 people because we can, we can reasonably say that's less of an impact on a society. Reasonably speaking. So then there's the third point they bring up. Picard... Most of the of the crew has at least relatively decided that helping is the right thing to do. And Pulaski, you know, the Bones allegory, of course she speaks solely on the moral and ethical side of things. We should help. So if there's a catastrophe, yes, we should help. But if there's a, a disease, yes, we should help. What about a war? And then she hesitates. Rightfully so. A war is an immensely complicated topic that can involve so many different parallels, ideas, changes. Wars can completely alter societies. That's happened to us more than once. <laughs> Arguably, uh, the Punic Wars fundamentally changed history. I could tell you definitively that the Great War changed history. World War One. So... You can kind of see why getting involved in a war is a lot stickier of a subject and something that would have to be very carefully debated on a very case-to-case -case situation. Lots of, you know, let's, let's scan this, let's figure out exactly what's going on, let's figure out exactly what we can do, right? My problem, and this is why I don't like this entire scene, this one bit right here just aggravates me, is that Picard slams them down with that point and then his response, and I'm trying to quote his word for word as I can, is... Oh, well, we're all less certain in our moral certitude now, aren't we? What? This is my problem with the application of the Prime Directive. The idea that it applies equally to all circumstances, which to me, personally, is ludicrous. I see no problem with the Federation helping out a planet if there's some catastrophic dilithium crap that's destroying their world. That's the kind of thing that, I don't know, I kind of personally believe the Federation should be doing. Like actively reaching out and looking around to find underdeveloped planets to help them through things they can't do anything about. I almost guarantee you that uh, their planet, I, I don't remember the name of the planet, forgive me, and its people probably didn't even know the nature of the problem. They just knew that everything's getting worse, and they don't know why, Right? It's like demanding that a two-year-old fix a server that has medical files for people who are going to die without it. <laughs> I like the idea of the Federation going around and dealing with those kind of situations, fixing those kinds of problems. War is a much different element. Uh, Picard brings up another good point. Oppression. 
What if one soci there's a society where one group of people, whether they be a species or a race or a gender or whatever, is, is dominating and overwhelming and oppressing the other or others? Or there's a, a multiple dynamic. What do we do about that? Well, that's a very good question, Picard. That should be very carefully analyzed on a case-by-base -case basis. But I'll even agree with Picard that there's a better-than-even chance that we shouldn't get involved in those kind of situations. Because that's a whole mess. We can't just always get involved any more than we can always not. What I find hysterical is later Picard says sophistry, and that's his only reaction to someone's argument. When that is exactly what he just did. By presuming that the prime directive or absence of the prime directive has to apply in all or none situations, that is a fallacy. That is literally the definition of incorrect logic, as far as I'm concerned. And that's why this episode, it's one of two reasons why this episode tends to leave a bad taste in my mouth, is that bit from Picard right there. It's a good discussion otherwise, and good points are brought up. And, and I wanted to end on a positive note here, as much as there are issues with this episode, and its last 14 minutes just drag, I really have nothing to say about it. Um, I do want to say that despite all of the philosophizing, all of the debating, all of the moral dilemma, all of the weird little problems like the fact that Data kind of disobeys the Prime Directive like three times, you know, I could nitpick the hell out of this episode. But what I like is that at the end of the day, a little girl... She isn't wearing pink this time. And her entire people are saved by our heroes, by the crew of the Enterprise. And that brings me back to my original point, the difference between the intangible and the tangible. For all the debating and, and haranguing and, oh gosh, what do we do about this? The reality that we are shown is that they did save those people and managed to do so without significantly altering their culture. Yes, I can already hear your counter-argument. Yes, this could significantly alter. If, if their planet just suddenly fixed itself, I'm pretty sure that would significantly alter their culture. But not in the same way as, hey, so we're from space, and uh, we're going to fix your stuff. We're with the Federation. Hi, we're better than you. Um, yeah, no, not like that. <laughs> but then, uh, I don't know what else to add to that. This actually turned out to be a better episode than I thought it would, and I'm looking forward to the next one. I will be seeing you guys next time.